excited that you've come back to Tiny Voice Talks, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me again. And today, Tiny Voice is talking all about kindness. And I'm incredibly pleased that I have been joined by someone whose title is The Kindness Coach. Now, I came across The Kindness Coach on Twitter. He took Twitter by storm a few months ago. And I am really pleased that John McGee, you have agreed to come and talk all about kindness to me today. So welcome. Thank you, Tuya. I, I must admit, I am feeling a little bit of, a, shall we say, excited energy. I, 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 I do not want to say nervous energy. I feel the excitement within my bones. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. So I know you as the kindness coach. And that's the sort of title that everyone knows you as with Twitter. But you're, you are John McGee. So tell our listeners, who is John McGee? <laughs> I've listened to your previous podcast, and I think it was um, was it Caitlin who who said on her podcast. You know, it's really it's a really difficult one to describe yourself. Mm. Um, well, I'll start by saying I am a father. I have mm-hmm. uh, three children, um, one of each. Yeah. Bum I <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't resist it. Um, I work in various schools by default in education which we'll we will talk about as um i never like saying this but it's it's what people say i'm inspirational Mm -hmm. motivational speaker um Mm -hmm. i'm an nlp master practitioner and i'm also an associate trainer with nlp in the northwest and an author that's me in a nutshell wow so I, i i'm guessing you didn't suddenly one day wake up and go do you know what i'm going to be a kindness coach so tell me about John McGee when John McGee was little. <sighs> wow, talk about going for the juggler. <laughs> I didn't see that coming for you. Mm-hmm. I didn't see that coming. I did, I did tell you that I wanted to unpick who John McGee was. Yeah, and, and, and I really didn't want to, you know, talk about the worky stuff. So, so it's, it's um, I, have, I have to confess, when, I, you know, when, I'm, when I'm out speaking um, and I get too sure my keynote, my life story. It's um, I've done thousands of talks, and it's it, it's the the same time I do it. It always brings up the same emotion. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't say that I had a um, a bad childhood or you know um, a bad upbringing, but a lot of other people, when I listen to their feedback after speaking, you know, because sometimes there's not a dry eye in the house. Uh, whether it's speaking to kids or you know to um, teachers, um, you know, I, we was Irish immigrants. My family and uh, we we grew up on a on a very socially deprived uh, council estate in Blackburn called Highercroft. It was like one of those council estates that you know has those sort of uh, stereotypes, you know, like a no-go area, lots of gang, lots of crime. Uh, lots of drugs and don't get me wrong some beautiful families on that estate um, but a lot of families um, you know live in social deprivation which brings about that sort of stuff and you know a lot of people I grew up we didn't have fathers in their life and, and that's what happened to me M- my dad was um, my dad was a beautiful human being but unfortunately um, when dad used to um, when dad used to get drunk dad had a lot of demons and like I said out of drink he was funny he was he was really nice when we were kids, but when he when he drunk, he just turned into a monster, really. And and it's what's what's commonly known today as domestic violence. Domestic violence. 
Um, they call it something else now. Or oh, domestic abuse, they call it now. So it was domestic violence. No, it wasn't abuse. It was violence and abuse when we were kids. And um, sadly, when dad was drunk and mum would ask him for money to, you know, to put food on the table for the kids, me and my sister, he, my mum was a punch bag. He would absolutely, you know, absolutely leather me. Um, we witnessed this, me and my sister, and, you know, the beatings, you can take the beatings, but dad used to say things to us, he'd stand over the bed and, and that's he'd have that smell of alcohol on his breath, and it, yeah. he'd, he'd say things towards, um, you know, like we weren't his children, and my mum was a whore, and lots of lots of things. And you know, when you're five, six years old, you can't understand, can you? So, um, no. yeah, that was the start of my childhood. So you can imagine going to school. Um, you know, it was um, it was quite challenging at school. And at school, were you? Was it known about, or was it? like the invisible child syndrome where things just weren't mentioned yeah me and my sister made like a like a pat like a promise you know we didn't yeah. get mum in any trouble you know mum you know when you see your mums with black eyes and you know broken nose kicked downstairs all that sort of stuff it's um yeah we didn't we didn't want to get we we sort of made a like a bond me and my sister and um but the the impact it had on my, me and my sister was was you know, looking back on my life now and, you know, having my own children, it, it had a real bad impact. And um, we didn't trust anybody at school, really. At school was quite a, um, like I said, it was a tough estate to grow up on. It was very, the Catholic school was very, quite strict. Um, yeah. Good people there, though. Mrs. Jennings, she was a lovely, you know, kind, caring human being. Um, mm-hmm. She was lovely. She, you know, she could get through to me and my sister. Um, but no, we, we, we kept it to ourselves and then up until the point where, it got it got too much, and obviously, mum left dad, and we were walking the streets and all that sort of stuff. So, it, when dad obviously when dad was took from my life, it had a massive impact on on me and my sister as individuals. You know, the, the, our behaviour just totally changed. You know, my my sister started biting and fighting with other children in the in the playground and in the school, and then I, I remember. Coming across the word, which is, shall we say it in the poshest way we can, you know, got to be PC on the podcast. Is it bar steward? You know, but the the, the really nasty word, which means you don't have a dad. And I'd learned yeah. that meant I had no dad and I didn't have a dad. My dad had left and my world crumbled. Yeah. Kathleen's world crumbled and um, she wanted my dad back. And um, so then my behaviour was I um, one six-week holidays, me and my friend, I call him Tommy. That's not his real name because I change everybody's names in my keynote story. We, we we smashed up the school. We went down one summer. We jumped on the roof and we sort of rebelled against the school because we had no dads. Um, wow. And that was the first sort of um, realising that dad wasn't coming back. Um, yeah. You know, um, and we just hit out and, and then I got arrested and I got my first criminal offence at 10 years old, which we'd be thinking about, you know, you know, nine, 10 years old. It's, it's crackers, isn't yeah. it? It's crackers. I think all that pent up energy, holding it in, holding everything in, trying to keep, trying to function out there in the real world. It had to explode somewhere, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it did. It did. And and, and I look back on this because I've got a book deal and I'm, I'm aiming to, to get out to Australia this year at some point there's someone who's, who wants to put this book together. And um, I've always sort of put it on ice because it brings up, you know, like I said, so much emotion. Uh, yeah, of course. But, and, and I reflected on this last year because as you and I talked in the past, that, you know, I'm, I do a lot of meditation, a lot of prayer. I keep, I have my faith. 
you know, and I, mm. I speak to the God of my understanding every day. I have my morning practice, which is my miracle morning, two hours. And, and you do that, you know, that, you know, where you, you're looking inside and you just, you start to reflect on stuff that's gone on in your life. And when I look back on my life, um, you know, everything that I loved was taken from me. My dad was taken from me, um, yeah. which had a massive impact on me and my sister. And then the next thing that happened was social services um, came to me and my mum, and then they took my sister off me. My sister got oh, good home. gosh! And I just that was just like that broke my heart. I know mum was fine. Mm-hmm. You know we had the psychiatrist round, and and Kathleen just wanted dad back, as did I. But he wasn't coming back. Yeah. He chose the drink and he chose that path. And um, and then the final nail in the coffin was, you know, mum mum met another fella. She met another partner. Very proud of our Irish roots. He was a lovely man. He was a totally opposite of dad. It was my stepdad Tommy? He was he was a beautiful, kind human being. He never raised an answer to me, ma. Um, yeah. But they used to drink in the pub all the time because Irish like to drink. And we don't have a pint of Guinness. We have a barrel and we sing. <laughs> sing loud. We like to get the crap going, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But the consequences of that was having two pubs on an estate. <laughs> you know, they always had a strong work ethic. But they'd be in the pub spending it all the week. Yeah. So, I would be on the estate and unfortunately my role models became like gang members and people who were up to no good on the estate, like, you know, stealing cars and doing robberies and lots of crazy stuff. And and, and when I look back now, you know, all I ever wanted to be was loved. That's, that's, that's all I ever wanted. And I just, I didn't feel it. Mum was took off me then. So dad had gone, Kathleen had gone into care. And social services were coming round. My mum were fighting to not for them to not put me in care, and only by the grace of God did I not go down that path. Uh, still ask myself that question: how that didn't happen. But then, when mum fell in love with Tommy, I was happy for it. But I just realised that when I look back, then I think I realised that I had to fend for myself from a very young age, from like 11, 12 years old, and I, I just couldn't cope at school. School was overwhelming. It was just overwhelming. Yeah. All too often, um, young people get drawn into gang culture because they want that acceptance, because they want to feel loved, because they want to be part of. And I can, yeah, it's really tough. So so I know that you managed to turn your life around, but at what point did that happen? Uh, same again. This, is, this has been coming up again this year, really. Um, this, I I call it connecting the dots. So when I look back yeah. on that now, I believe I believe as human beings, we all get inspired off different people in life. And if we look back on a timeline of our life, my timeline, when I look back, pivotal points in my life where there was a change in direction in whether it was my personal life, my career, you know, just stuff going on at that time, my experience was always from an act of kindness. So yeah. each dot, it took like a different route on my path in life and it always came from somebody's kindness um and this goes right back um to being in primary school i remember she was called eileen she was an irish lady and i i'd, I'd go i'd queue up for my dinner tray you know like, you know maybe a year one year, mm-hmm. and I'd, I'd, I'd make, yeah i'd make a beeline for her i'd make a beeline for her because once she had an irish accent and she was always really joyful and i used to hate having freckles and she used to go oh young john young john Freckles are a sign of beauty, son. 
second freckles are a sign of beauty. And I always remember her saying that. And it used to make it used to make me glow. Those yeah. kind words that that dinner lady used to say to me. And those those connections of in my life, I've started connecting them when I got to 10. I remember Bob and Diane Cowell were big members of the Catholic Church, which was like adjacent to our school, which our school was Our Lady Perpetual Supper. And they, they, they took me on like a summer fair once next to the church and I won the donkey derby and I got a little trophy. And I always remember making a big deal about me. And it was like yeah. it was their kindness again. It was their kindness when I look back, you know. Uh, and then that's what happened after all the crazy stuff that happened, you know, failing my education, leaving school at 14 with no GCSEs. I ended up being on substances and on drugs taking, and, and I'm ashamed to say it, selling drugs as well. Uh, same happened to my sister. And then lots of my friends started taking heroin and lots of them sadly passed away. Um, and then for me, you know, um, years after that, going through that darkness and just that loss of what's going on, um, there was a, a Christian man who came on the estate. It was called John Thorpe, and his story was he was a gay man, and he'd become born again Christian, give his life to Jesus, and you know, and I was like, look, I believe in religion, but you know, don't be Bible bashing me and all that sort of thing. <laughs> this guy, this guy had balls of steel. I mean, Hirecroft was a no-go area. He did not come on this ice, on this estate. You'd be you'd be left fighting for your life, and this guy stood on the estate in front of a gang of 20-odd youths, mm -hmm. a gang of with a Bible in his hand, and he said, there's a dark cloud coming over this estate, but you can be saved with the name of Jesus, and Jesus loves you. And everyone were laughing at him. But me and a handful of my friends, we thought, hold on a minute, this guy's got something here. How come he's not scared? And how come he's stood here, you know, when he could absolutely be beaten with an inch of his life? And yeah. He just sort of opened up his testimony and me and a few of friends went round and we, we listened to this. And I remember walking into this flat on the estate and all these so-called big, hard gangsters on this estate, they were all sat there with Bibles. It was hilarious. <laughs> it was so funny. Do you know that little thing where they, they say they have tongues of fire on the head? And I walked in and I remember seeing this absolute lunatic off our estate who'd been glassed, stabbed. I think he'd been shot. I think his nickname was Lucky. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> No, this is not his real name. I'll tell you his name. And he was like, I went, I am Mark. And he went, are you, John? Take a seat. This guy had not only paced you. Take a seat. He was offering you a cup of tea and he had his Bible open. I'm thinking, what's going on? And I don't, wow. know, I don't know what happened back there in those early 1990s after that crazy party scenes and drugs and promiscuity and everything else. But something happened to me that day. And I can't remember if I did make a commitment to Jesus or whatever. All I knew is I knew there was more to life than going to jail or dying yeah. of drugs or being that sort of criminal lifestyle. And um, and I met. I never got the happy clapping stuff going to the churches and stuff, but all I knew is that I was around kind, good people mm. who wanted to make a difference, you know, in communities. And uh, that was the first step in me then thinking, you know, there's more to life than this. And um, I got on a course. That I, I sorted and I thought, right, I'm going to get on a course at Blackman College. I'm going to do what my cousins have done. And they really inspired me to believe in myself, these people. And then I met lots of youth workers on the F State, which was another which was another turning point in my life, which um, I often tell this story, and this is his real name, he's called Gwillem Hall. And I remember 
please forgive me again for saying this, but we were stoned out of our faces. We've been smoking loads of weed. And we was in mm. this in this community centre playing table tennis, me and my friend called Gaz. And this guy come up, this guy called Gwillem Hall, uh, worked for Youth Works. And he said, you guys, you know, you, you've got so much to give to life. You know, why are you wasting your time just playing table tennis? And I know you've been smoking something. Look at those eyes. And we were giggling like little kids. And yeah. He, and he said something to me that day, Dick Gwillem. And I share this when I'm speaking. And this was that thing he, he believed in me, this guy, as did this John, mm. this Christian guy. And he, he looked at me and I, he was another guy. I couldn't put my finger on. He didn't have an agenda. We were streetwise kids. We could tell if someone had an agenda. We could wear people up. We were wild. We were feral. We could wear people up yeah. quick. But I couldn't wear this Gwillem up. He was just, same again, his kindness really touched my heart. And he said, he said this to me, and this is what changed my life. He looked at me and he said, John, who do you look up to as a positive role model? And I don't know why. I don't trust many. I didn't trust many people back then. And I was very aware when people would ask questions like that. And I just blurted it out. I went, my cousin Lee. And he went, what does your cousin Lee do? And I, I sort of made this hand gesture. I went, he's a joiner. like, I'm sewing something. And he went, <laughs> he went, what's stopping you getting on a course at Blackman College? And I made every excuse. I can't. I've got a criminal record. I've left yeah. school with no GCSEs. Uh, I'm a known gang member or involved in crime and so on and so forth. I said, and I have a BB2 postcode, which is like, you know, like, you know, the the rough area of Blackburn. And he went, yeah. he said, so what? He said, so what? And I went, as soon as he said that, a light bulb went on. And I thought, he's right. I can be like my cousin Lee. He's no Absolutely. Yeah, he's no dad. And I've no dad, and most of my mates don't mm. have male role models. And then that was it. I thought, I'm going to do something. And then he just turned around to me, Gwillem, he said to me, listen, we're going to raise a lot of money for charity. And I think you and your mate, Gaz, would really get a lot out of this. And could you get some other lads involved? Didn't even realise he were mentoring us then. He were coaching us. And because we trusted him, and because he did so much for us and kept us, we had a safe place to go at night instead of fighting with other gangs or getting into trouble with police. We had somewhere warm where we could play table tennis or have a brew and a few, you know, digestive biscuits. And he said to mm. me, we're going to raise money for this charity. It's called Bliss. And what it's for, it's for premature babies that are born really mm. early and they're going to die. And it touched my heart. And I went, yeah, I'm in. I'm in Gullum. Aren't we, Gas? We're in, aren't we? So like sort of peer pressed all in lot. And went, oh, yeah, John's doing it. We're doing it. And I went, so what are we actually doing for charity? And he went, <laughs> he said, we're doing a parachute jump. And I went, <laughs> I went, you what? And he went, we're doing a parachute jump. I said, I heard you the first time, Gwillem, <laughs> but I couldn't bottle it. And then that's what changed my life. I did this parachute jump and I just got into wow. believing him because I, I believed that I was scared of heights, but I threw myself out of the plane. I believed that yeah. I failed my education. I couldn't go on a college and progressing life i believed that because i had that mark as a criminal that my life was over i believed that because dad had left i couldn't be a good dad myself one day and i thought no i'm putting all them beliefs down dad those old beliefs don't make me now as as you know a young adult and that's when i made that step i got on a course at blackman college and then that was the start of john mcgee's education getting an mvq level one and two carpentry and joinery and then the massive turning point was community and charity work. He tried, I'm ashamed to say it, I've took every drug 
apart from heroin. And I've never had a better feeling than doing fundraising, charity work, and being of service for others. And, and that's not my ego. Yeah. The, the way it makes me feel to know that my choices, my actions can have a profound positive impact on other people's lives, as we both know, a kindness ripple yeah. that just keeps going and impacting people's lives. I think it's an amazing power that we all have as human beings to help each other and to be kind to one another. Yeah. Gosh. I've just, yeah, you're absolutely right. There is no better feeling than the feeling you get when you are kind to someone and you can see the impact that that is having. And I know that it wasn't a quick journey until you became the kindness coach. But tell us what happened that sudden, you know, that you actually created this this persona the kindness coach and that's what you live and breathe today yeah well along that journey the only thing I ever wanted to become at that time in life was a good father that's that was my number one goal having money it wasn't having you know the the fittest girlfriend (laughs) you know (laughs) (laughs) the nicest car even though I had a few it was to be a good dad one day all I ever wanted to be was a dad and the good news in the story is dad did get clean later on in life and we did get a relationship um but I did it. and That's I, wonderful. Yeah, it is. And I, I did do it. We, uh, I met a lovely girl. We, we settled down and we had our first child. Um, <clears throat> the sad part of the story is, um, as I said at the beginning of the interview, my eldest daughter, Leona, um, I took full custody of her. Me and my mum when she was just um, nearly six months old and she calls me daddy or. And uh, the sad part of the story is uh, my sister sadly died at 39. Um, through substance mission that had a massive impact on me and I didn't want that I'm sure. to go through that um but bringing Leona up me and my mum and being like you know a positive role model for her um that's all I wanted to be I wanted to be a positive role model for my kids and and I did it I worked hard I progressed up the the career ladder I got headhunted every three years to different companies and I, I ended up landing a dream job in London which was for the global the biggest global a plumbing manufacturer called John Get Speed Fit. I landed a 40 grand package. I'm like, wow, have a blank this. <laughs> have a blank Wow. So I got mm-hmm. married. We went off to Mexico. We had a family. Everything, life was going good. I was with my ex wife for nearly 12 years. And then in, 2000, in 2004, 2005, I went into business um, with a chap called David Dunn, who was a professional footballer, played for Blackburn Rovers Football Club. And David and I had met along this journey and we got into charity work and supporting the local community, both very proud Blackburn lads. Mm-hmm. And my old former boss had sold his company for 30 million. And to cut a long story short, we set up a bathroom company, high-end bathroom companies, and it was absolutely flying for three or four years. And then the crash came in 2008 yeah. and um, it hit me hard. It hit me so hard that I was fighting bankruptcy, um, it put so much pressure on my marriage and uh, me and my wife just, we ended up calling it a day. We was arguing and falling and falling, falling out. And uh, I just started to see myself. I was drinking heavily at the time. And um, me and my me and my ex-wife had a massive argument this, this one day. It was in front of the children and I, I just brought down. I just brought down and said, I can't do this anymore, Donna. I can't do it. Yeah. Once I'd seen this massive row we did in front of kids, 
and this tussle we'd had with each other. I just seen my dad and myself and it freaked me out. I thought, I can't do this. I can't do it. So I left her the house and said, look, you can have the house. I'll pay the mortgage. And then just something happened. Um, I couldn't get a job back in the plumbing and bathroom industry because of the credit crunch and the global crash. And just a friend of mine who was um, pretty high up at a photocopying company, um, he gave me a job with a company car. And my number one priority was not losing the house. I didn't want to lose the house. Um, yeah. Pay the mortgage with the children in. And so I got this job and uh, I didn't like it, you know, selling photocopies, but I thought I've got to save this house. And it was while I went there, I got invited to a networking event called BNI and I met an amazing human being called Amanda Meachin, who was the chief exec of community and business partner. Now, this is going to freak you out. Are you ready for this? Yes. So you had to stand up and say, oh, my name's John. I'm from Orsa and I can save you money on your printing and your whatever stuff. I can't remember what I <laughs> All I kept thinking is I can't lose this mortgage. I've lost everything else. I can't yeah. lose kids and my ex-wife's got to stay in this house. So I got talking to this Amanda Meachin and about, I don't know, a couple of months in, she came up to me and you do a bit of networking. She said to me, oh, what, are you are you local, John? I said, yeah. I said, you know, I had this business with David Dunn. And she says, um, oh, she said, I've just set up a massive social enterprise on a, a council estate called Hayercroft Roman Road. And I was like, oh, I thought that's my estate. She said, yeah, we bought the community centre. We put a £1.2 million extension on it. And what we're going to do is we're going to support the local community and up and set up their own social enterprises, which in turn will obviously get them a foot on the ladder. And I was like, this is incredible. So I thought, I'm doing my cheap Matalan suit. (laughs) I'm thinking, well, he's told her about my past. So I had my cards closed. I wouldn't say anything. I said, oh, it sounds really good that you're doing that. So about three or four weeks later, I went up to her and I said, Amanda, this work that you're doing on estate, is it going to help the kids as well? You know, like those kids on that estate. She said, yeah, why? You seem really interested, John. And I said, look, Amanda, I'm going to be really honest with you now. And she said, what? And I said, it's fair to say in my younger life, I was on the wrong side of the law, um, mm-hmm. both with gangs and criminal activity. And, uh, and at one point, I nearly went to jail. And she went, oh, my God, you know what you are, don't you? And I went, yeah, an ex-con. She went, <laughs> she went no, you're a role model. She went, she went, your story can change so many people's lives. Will you come and do a talk for me in a couple of weeks? I, I, I said, what? She said, will you come and do a talk for me? I said, what about? She went, that, what you've just told me. She went, yeah. a called Inspiring Communities. She went, I want you to come and talk on it. She went, I'll pay you. And I went, how many talks do you want me to do? <laughs> <laughs> and that was the part of it. I went and talked at that talk in 2009. And my life changed forever because I didn't know there was MPs, influential people in there. And then that was the start of the journey. I had a a pseudonym called Mr. Consequence where I talked about every action has consequences. And I went all over the country. I spoke on the BBC a handful of times, met Prince William, uh, signing autographs, would you believe it? Still doing that now. I still pinch myself when I get to do it. Um, And I just said this, this story about the value of education and the consequences yeah. of risk-taking behaviour and just helping kids believe in themselves regardless of, you know, what card you've been dealt because we've all got stuff in life, just to do yeah. your best, to be kind, build, you know, relationships with your teachers, with your with your parents, your carers, with everybody because, you know, life's so much better, you know, 
when we get along and we're kind to each other and it's 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 not rocket science it's just relationships you know um, and communication is one of the keys to your success to to do that and when we do it with kindness i've i've witnessed it and i'm still witnessing it now um magic it just it just you see it just open before your eyes you see it it's beautiful so you've created for others what you needed as a young person yourself you've created or given them that role model that you were seeking that you really needed yeah that's wonderful that really really is and I mean as I said before you live and breathe kindness people just need to see what you're doing on Twitter or on Facebook or in your books or in your 30-day challenge just to see that everything that you are doing is living and breathing kindness which is wonderful so if people want to follow you or find you, how do they do that, John? Yeah, you like Twitter is, is the big one. It's like you said, and thank you for your kind words earlier because I'm pinching myself, you know, meeting so many amazing people like yourself this year. And uh, before I before I said that, can I just give a shout out to Rich at Kindness Ripple who set up that? Oh, yes, we do like Rich and yeah, the Kindness Ripple. Rich. And he's been, you know, he's been, we've been talking, throwing things about Tom with his mood boards. I love positivity. Keep it coming, Tom. Yeah. He's brilliant with those. I love so many. I could go on and on and on. It's, um, and yourself and Evo Hannon, so many beautiful, kind people. Um, And we're all connecting together and we're doing it with love and kindness. uh, So for me on Twitter, it's just kindnesscoach underscore at the end. Or if they just Mm -hmm. look online and just put, you know, the kindnesscoach.me, they'll, They'll find a lot of my stuff, and um, I just I just feel that you know kindness connects people, and when we are connected, you know we can just create beautiful, amazing things, you know, which you know they empower us, they empower others, and it makes our planet, you know, just a lovely a lovely place to live. It really does. It really does. So I have a final question. I don't think I pre warned you about my final question. My final question is this. If you could have, if you could have had anyone living or dead to teach you, who would it have been? Listen, I've already got this. I've already got this. Have you? Oh, you've been listening to the other podcasts then. I did. I listened to it, Caitlin, in the shower this morning and I nearly fell out of the bath when she talked, when she said she nearly had a piddle in the corner. (laughs) Thanks for that, Caitlin. That was a great interview, by the way. It really tickled me. And so was Schwebs, Ben Browns, and uh, Sharifas. They were all great, but that did tickle me when Caitlin said that. So my two that I would like to go for, I would like, can I choose two? Is that okay? Why don't you? Just go for it. Just completely ruin the whole programme idea, but you just go for two. Well, we're talking about equality, so it had to be a lady first and the man. Yes, okay. Okay. The lady would be the late, great, and an amazing mentor and speaker, Louise Hay. She's just a beautiful, oh, gosh, yes. amazing book. I bought it for my daughters. You can heal your life, and, it, and I've read it. Mm-hmm. And it's brilliant. And then the other one, my brother from another mother, <laughs> is uh, Dr. Wayne Dyer. The late, great yeah. Dr. Wayne Dyer. Change your thoughts, change your life, live in the wisdom of the Tao. Them two people. Oh my God! They have, they have just stripped off so many layers of hurt and pain and fear that I've experienced in life, and helped me understand that everything's okay. We're all perfect, just the way we are. We really are, John McGee. 
Kindness Coach, it has been absolutely fantastic speaking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on Tiny Voice Talks and have a lovely day. Thank you for your kindness.